kid Johnny Manziel is, mm, you know, I don't know. I don't want to fill in the blank for you there. But chances are there's, there's a, lot, a lot of negative public opinion about Johnny Manziel. In fact, even in the last year, um, he was let go by the Browns, the team that drafted him, right? They drafted him out of college, and they basically just said, man, he's not worth it, right? He's just too much trouble. He's constantly causing trouble. He's partying. He's missing practices. He's missing games. We're done with him. Well, not only that, but his agent that represented him in the draft a couple years ago, even his agent was like, man, I'm done with him. He's too much trouble. Like, he's constantly just, you know, making just boneheaded decisions in life, and his agent fired him. Uh, Not only that, but then his marketing company that marketed for him and did PR for him, even they said, man, we're done, game over. And then he hired a new agent, a guy named Drew Rosenhaus, who is like this, you know, he's the agent to all of the big names and all the stars. I mean, he's the guy, the agent that handles these people who are just, you know, really hard to work with. Drew Rosenhaus even fired him. Like, it's amazing, this list of ways in which He's been rejected. Even Nike said, we're done. They cut off their deal with him. And so he's sort of persona non grata right now. And the reason why, honestly, it's all self-inflicted stuff. I mean, it's going to Vegas and partying and skipping practice. You know, it's uh, getting involved in fights and then drunken sort of melees with his girlfriend, getting pulled over. It's, you know, drug issues. It's failing to show up, you know, for team meetings. I mean, it's just this list and list and list of things. And what's interesting, what's so sad about it is you look at Johnny Manziel and you think, man, he, he was so blessed. He was given so much. Um, he was born into a family that was really a two-parent home. It was kind of a healthy family on the, you know, on the outside. His parent had, parents had money. They had some wealth. He experienced success right away as a football player. So in high school, he had all these great numbers. In his high school career, he threw for 7,626 yards and 76 touchdowns in high school. Well, that's, that's remarkable. Not only that, but he rushed 531 times for 4,045 yards in high school. That's a ton, right? And he rushed for 77 touchdowns. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. The stats are rem- just remarkable. He caught 30 passes for 582 yards and scored another five touchdowns that way. I mean, his high school career was unbelievable. Like, it was just amazing, right? He was, you know, voted Mr. Football. And then he was recruited, recruited by all these massive colleges. And so he could have gone sort of anywhere he wanted to go. He decided to go to Texas A&M. As a freshman at Texas A&M, he broke all these records. He broke um, Archie Manning's 43-year-old record for most yards in a game when he fl- threw for five, or actually ac- accounted for 557 total yards against Arkansas. And so right away, as a freshman, he makes this massive impact, and he breaks a 43-year-old year old record. The next week, he actually had 576 yards from scrimmage against the 24th-ranked team in the nation. And so he actually did better the next week. The rest of the year, he did all these amazing things. He led Texas A&M to beat number one Alabama, right? I mean, again, massive success. At the end of this amazing freshman year, again, he's, you know, 19 years old, probably 18 when he began. He was awarded for the only time in the history of the Heisman Trophy. He was awarded the Heisman Trophy as a freshman. That's just remarkable, right? Then his sophomore year, he went back out and had an amazing season again. He came in fifth that year in the Heisman Trophy, uh, Trophy Award um, voting. But he just had this amazing sort of career, and he had all these blessings, and he was granted all these awards, right? He was given all this great stuff, and what he did was that he sort of just blew it all, right? And you, you hear about that story, and I think it's the reason that so many people have disdain for Johnny Manziel is because they think, man, you are, you are called to so much, and you just haven't lived a life worthy of that calling that you have received, right? You know, as believers, 
who have been given so much, we often also don't live lives that are worthy of the calling that we've received, right? We've been called into God's family as adopted children, but we live instead of as daughters and sons as slaves, right? We live in fear. We've been called to be seen as holy and blameless, but instead we live in guilt and self-loathing. We've been shown mercy, we've been given grace, but so often, despite the fact that we've been shown mercy, we live in constant judgment of other people. Does that make sense? We don't walk worthy of the calling that we have received, right? And so here, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, what he does is he goes, okay, you need to walk worthy of the calling that you've received in Christ. All the truths of those first three chapters, they need to change you. They need to make you a totally different person. And so in Ephesians chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul begins to unpack what it looks like to live that life. And we're just going to look at the first six verses. And even in the first six verses of chapter 4, even here, I'm only going to focus on a couple different things. There's just too much to talk about. But follow along with me, if you will. As a prisoner for the Lord, then. Paul's in prison. It's the second time he's been in prison, uh, essentially for his faith. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy, or literally, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely, completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, right? The message comes through kind of loud and clear. It, this, our, our calling should change the way that we live. Now, it would be appropriate here very quickly to just give a reminder of what that calling is. And so I'm going to read some verses from Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. And the question again is, what is the calling that we've received? Starting at verse 4 of chapter 1. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's a pretty amazing calling. In love, he predestined us for adoption, right? Not just to be seen as holy and blameless, but to be invited into his family as daughters and sons of God. Again, it's a pretty amazing calling. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We've been called uh, out of slavery to be redeemed, to be forgiven. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. But because of his great love for us, we've been called to be loved by God. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, right? What are we called to? To be made alive, to be fully human, right? made us alive with Christ, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, for through him we both, that is, Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father by one Spirit, right? That's a lot of amazing stuff we've been called to, right? Called, chosen, etc., etc. It's funny, I read over the sermon last night to Krista, who um, helps me see things that I cannot see by myself sometimes, And Krista pointed out, she said, you know, at least with Johnny Manziel, he kind of earned a lot of what he was called to, right? He put in a lot of the work. He put a lot of the effort in. But she said, ours is totally a gift, right? We didn't do anything to earn it. In fact, Scripture goes out of its way to point out that God chose the Israelites not because of their greatness, not because of their bravery, not because of their fidelity to him, but precisely because they were nothing, 
right? Because they were small. And God chose the smallest of them, the nation of Israel, in order to show his grace to them. And I honestly think that's true with us as well. God doesn't choose us because of our goodness or because of our loveliness. He chooses us in order to show his goodness and his loveliness. Again, here are the things we've been called to. He chose us. He chose us to be seen as holy and blameless in his sight. That's miraculous. Uh, He loves us. He has predestined us for adoption. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. He has made us alive. He has seated us with Christ, we're told. We have access to the Father. We've been given this amazing calling, and we're called to live worthy lives in light of that calling. Now, we've used used the illustration of um, the book Les Mis on numerous occasions here at Seven Hills Fellowship, and so I'm going to not give a a lengthy sort of um, uh, illustration here, but I'm simply going to say this, is that for those of you who know the story, Jean Valjean, who's the central character in Les Mis, um, when we first run into him in the story, um, he's been released from jail. He's a thief, he's a violent criminal, and after serving his time in a, a prison doing hard labor, he's let go. And he's given a yellow letter, and the people who are parolees of you know, types of crime had to carry this letter around with them wherever they went in France in order to let people know that they're, you know, they're criminals and that they've you know, committed violent crimes. And so he enters into this one city, and he has no place to sleep, and so a priest takes him into his home, and the priest feeds him, and the priest gives him a bed, and the priest says, here, you can you know, sleep in our house. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean, you guys are familiar with the story probably, wakes up in the middle of the night. And he goes into the dining room and he steals the priest's silver. And uh, the priest wakes up in the middle of the night hearing this noise. And Jean Valjean knocks him out and runs away. And so not only does he steal the priest's silver, but he knocks him out, commits another violent crime against him. Later the next day, the French authorities catch Jean Valjean and they bring him back to the priest's house. And when they bring Jean Valjean back to the priest's house, Jean Valjean fully expects to be condemned. He fully expects for the priest to say, he's the one who did it. Not only did he steal the silver, but he punched me in the face and he knocked me out. And instead, what the priest does is he offers Jean Valjean forgiveness. And as you read the book or if you've seen the movies, you can imagine the shock on Jean Valjean's face when he's offered exactly the opposite of what he deserves, when he's offered mercy. And what happens is the priest goes further. Not only does he offer Jean Valjean mercy, but he offers him grace. He gives him what he doesn't deserve, which is he gives him the rest of the silver he forgot to take in the first place. And then the rest of the story tracks the life of Jean Valjean as he lives out the reality of what he's been given as this priest has shown him mercy and grace. What the priest says is he says this, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With the silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. Right? You've been given this calling. Now live worthy of this calling, and that's exactly what Jean Valjean does. He changes his identity. He moves to a new town and becomes a successful businessman that employs the poor of that village of that town. He becomes the mayor, and he begins to do good. He begins to fight injustice. He's a blessing to all the people around him. He, uh, he adopts a troubled girl. He rescues people from death. He fights against the political corruption of that town. And if you've seen uh, the movie or read the book, he forgives his enemy. He lives that new life that's worthy of the calling that he has received. He's been shown mercy and grace. What Paul is saying here is that we too must live lives that are worthy of the calling that God has placed upon our lives as he has shown us mercy and grace that we did not deserve, that we did not earn. 
right? Now, the next thing, of course, is then to say, okay, well, I admit that I need to walk worthy of this calling I've received, but what would that look like? And again, I'm just here to tell you, Paul's going to use the next three chapters of the book of Ephesians to tell you lots of ways in which it looks like this. But I'm just going to focus on three very simple things from verses 2 and 3. I'm going to read these verses really quickly. Verses 2 and 3 say this, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so the, the number one way in which it looks like for us to walk worthy of the calling we've received is that we live lives of humility. Be completely humble. Now, if you look at the Greek word and you go look at the dictionaries that sort of unpack these Greek words, the, the, uh, the definition, the formal definition from Strong's is modesty or lowliness of mind. Modesty or lowliness of mind. Now, it is modesty in the sense that you don't need to show what you've got, right? That's, that's sort of part of humility. You don't need to show it, right? In fact, you don't need to prove yourself to anyone, right? You can, you can simply act in humility. You can be modest about the gifts that you have, about the strengths that you have. It's also lowliness of mind in the sense that you don't think too highly of yourself. You know the reality of who you are. There's a book called Outliers written by a man named Malcolm Gladwell. And in it, an outlier mathematically is anything that's on either extreme of the bell curve. And in the book Outliers, he's really focusing on people who are exceptional. And what he basically begins the book saying is he basically says there's no such thing as a self-made human. Like we have this myth especially in America, of people who pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they become great because they're hard work and because they're effort. And what he basically shows is he says, you know what, everybody that's great, whether it's Beethoven or Steve Jobs, is the product of all sorts of wonderful blessings that they received that they didn't do anything to earn, right? They were born at a particular time and place in history with parents who, you know, pushed them to achieve all of these different things. Humility comes when we basically say, you know, I'm not as great as I might be tempted to think that I am. It's lowliness of mind. And so a functional definition for humility is this. We're going to put it up on the screen. It's this. It's humility is a willingness to make yourself small or low for the sake of others. So humility is a willingness to make yourself small or low for the sake of others or to regard yourself as small or low for the sake of others. That's, it's kind of embedded in that, that Greek word, to make yourself low, to make yourself small. For the sake of other people. And it's always really from the position of power. Now, I use, I'm using an illustration this morning of someone who uh, many of you know, Steve Briggs. I actually texted him to ask him if I could use him as an illustration of humility, and he responded back by saying, I only act humble, which I think is kind of funny. So even that is humble in itself. But if you've ever walked around with Steve Briggs before, he's um, the president of Barry. But it's funny because here at church, when he's in the great room and I'm talking to him and somebody walks up, and I'll introduce him, I'll go, hey, this is Steve Briggs. And inevitably what he says is, hey, my name's Steve Briggs, I work for Barry. Or in other words, I'm a servant of Barry. And, uh, and on the one hand, you know, part of me is always like, hey, man, Steve, come on, just tell him you're the president. But there's a real sense in which there's some, there's some depth to what he's communicating about who he really is and how it is that he views that authority that God has granted him. Not only that, but if you walk around Barry's campus with him, he's constantly bending down to pick up a piece of trash, or he's constantly doing something that needs to be done. He, he's not afraid to make himself low, either in actuality or even think about himself in that way. It's not just that he acts humble, he truly is humble. And you got to ask, you know, where does that come from? Does it come from the example of Martha Berry? Sure. Does it come from the example of his father who was a pastor? Probably. But ultimately it comes from the example 
of the one whose life he follows, Jesus. Listen to what Jesus, uh, we're told about Jesus in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Just let that sink in for a minute, because I'm pretty sure that message is not heard all that often in 2017. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, making yourself low, considering yourself low, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, it's not saying not to have your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. He was willing to let it go, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's ultimately what this humility looks like, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Makes sense. If Jesus was the most powerful man on earth, the most powerful man in the universe, if he was willing to make himself low, to consider himself low in order to serve, right? how much more so should we? The question that I have for each of you today is, would those in relationship with you say that you willingly humble yourself? Would those in relationship with you say that you make yourself low in order to serve them or to serve others? Is that how people would describe you? We're being called to walk worthy of the calling we've received. The next thing we see that is involved in this in walking worthy is not only are we called to be humble, but we're also called to be gentle. Let me read these verses again. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, again, if you go back to that same dictionary that defines Greek words, it's called Strong's. It defines this idea of gentleness as uh, mildness or meekness. And so when you hear the words mild or meek, our tendency is to think sort of mousy and weak and somebody who gets sort of walked all over, right? That's sort of, I guess that's the way we tend to think about those things. They're still good definitions, but the problem is we think about them in a certain way. And so let me give another functional definition of what gentleness is. Gentleness is having the right or the power to be harsh, the right or the power to be harsh or to enact judgment, but instead acting kindly for the benefit of someone else. So it's the right or the power to be harsh or to enact judgment, but instead acting kindly for the benefit of someone else. Let me give two examples. One example is this. There's something called the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, which most of you in here probably are watching pretty regularly. And, um, but probably, I don't know, five, six years ago, the, the heavyweight champion of the UFC was this guy named Chuck Liddell. We got a picture of him right here. He's got a mohawk, He's like 6'2", 245 pounds. He was just sort of a man among boys. And, uh, and ultimately, he held the, na- the championship for I don't know how long, long time. But I was listening to the radio one day, and I heard an interview with him. And the, the guy that was interviewing Chuck Liddell said, hey, you know, have you ever had anybody try to pick a fight with you? And uh, Chuck Liddell said, well, you know, actually, that happens every now and then. And he said, he tells a story. He said, you know, one time I was in a bar. And he said, I was at the bar, just sort of minding my own business. And this guy came up to me who was drunk. And the guy tried to pick a fight with me. And he said, it became pretty clear that he didn't know who I was, right? And so he was like, well, it's one thing if people knew who I was and tried to pick a fight with me. But this guy was just totally uh, clueless about who I was. 
and he tried to pick a fight with me. And so I said to him, I said, you know, hey, man, listen, you know, why don't you walk away and, and let's not fight. We don't need to do that. And the guy kept trying to pick a fight with him, and Chuck Liddell continued to be sort of, you know, gentle with him and eventually got his friends and said, hey, you might want to just get him and get him aside. It was this really, you know, this is not, a, not ordinarily a gentle human, right, in the, in the UFC. But he was being gentle with this guy who was trying to pick a fight with him because he clearly had, in some respects, the right to punch the guy in the face and knock him out, right, as well as the ability to do so. And yet he chose, ultimately, um, to not exercise that right, to enact judgment upon this guy, but instead to be kind to this person that was trying to pick a fight with him for the guy's benefit, right? Another illustration of, um, ultimately, of this idea of gentleness. Some of you have seen the YouTube clip um, of this orangutan that saves a baby bird. Have you guys seen this YouTube clip? You might want to check it out. It's worth it. And I got a picture right here. Nope, that's not it. My bad. That's just... That was just a cute picture. I thought it was funny. Anyway, <laughs> this is a picture of it, actually. And so there's this giant orangutan, and they're at the zoo. I'm not sure where. And uh, somebody's filming just on their camera, and this little robin, baby robin, falls out of a tree, lands in the water, and this big orangutan sees the baby robin fall in the water, and this huge, powerful orangutan tears off this sort of um, this leaf, and he reaches out into the water, and he very gently sort of you know, pulls the little baby bird over to the shore, and then the, the orangutan, this big, powerful beast, you know, gently bends down and very carefully picks up the baby bird and puts it in the grass. And then right here, what the orangutan is doing, he's sort of petting it, which is kind of cute, you know. And so the idea of both of these illustrations is that both of these illustrations, especially, you know, with the Chuck Liddell one, he has the right to exercise judgment on this guy. With the orangutan, he had the power to exercise judgment over this little bird to crush it. Like, he has the power to do that. And yet both of them chose not to use either their right or their power, but instead acted in kindness to the other. Let's look again at Jesus. This is from John chapter 8. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group publicly, shaming her, and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women... Now, what do you say? Of course, they're trying to trick Jesus. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Right? Just giving some time for everybody to think. Who knows what he wrote? When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground, and we don't know what he wrote. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up, stood up, and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is a picture of gentleness because Jesus had the right to condemn this woman, right? He was God. He has the right to condemn her. He also had the power to condemn her. He was God, but instead, he was gentle with her for her sake. He acted in kindness. Again, the question is, would those in relationship with us say that we are gentle, right? Would they say that we refrain from using our strength for our own sake and instead use it for the benefit of those 
that we're in relationship with? Are we gentle? Are we humble? Are we walking worthy? The last thing we see in this passage that we're going to focus on today is that walking worthy not only looks like humility, it not only looks like gentleness, but it also looks like patience. And I'm going to tell you the Greek word just because it's a good word. It's kind of an interesting word, but it's macrothumia. Macro meaning law, you know, sort of large or long, and thumia, which means sort of wrath or passion. And so I'm going to read this verse. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And so again, Strong's defines this as patience, endurance, constancy, steadfastness, perseverance in the face of suffering or injustice, which is pretty important to this definition. But literally that word macrothumia means far away wrath or far away indignation. Far away wrath, far away indignation. It's the idea of, again, somebody who has the right or the power to be angry or to be indignant. And yet when you come into the context of one of these people or you walk into a relationship with one of these people, you know that wrath is far, far away, right? And indignation is far, far away. So maybe, again, a good working definition for patience is that patience is having a really, really long fuse in the face of personal injustice, when people do you wrong, when people hurt you, right, or suffering when people hurt you. So when I think about this picture of macrothumia, there's any number of different visions that come to mind, but as the nerdy guy who loves to watch documentaries on TV about animals, one of the things I think about is I think about when lion cubs play with their parents, right? And so here you've got a picture of a lion club, and he's playing with his dad, this giant, you know, male lion. And if you go onto, you know, Google, you can image search all of these things. But in every picture, you know, the lion cub is chomping down on the big father lion's tail with his teeth, right? Or in every single picture, the lion cub is chewing on his dad's ear and pulling it, right? Or practicing fighting and swatting the dad on his muzzle with his little, you know, paws or whatever. And all the while, the big giant lion, in all of its power and all of its authority, simply lays there, right, trying to take a nap, being patient with the little lion cub. That's, that's the picture here, that the wrath of this, of this father lion is far, far away. He's, he's simply letting this little lion cub um, hurt him, biting him, clawing him, wrestling on him for the sake of this little lion club. Again, what do we see about Jesus? Luke chapter 23 uh, is a story that all of you are familiar with. Jesus has been falsely accused. He's been arrested. He's had a crown of thorns placed upon his head. He's been um, struck on the cheek. He's been ridiculed. And here in verse 33, we enter into this story of him being led to the cross. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. <clears throat> and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And so there's this amazing contrast of him being abused and suffering injustice and in the midst of it saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And they just continue to divide up his clothes. Verse 35, the people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him, right? Just sneered at him. They were despising him. They were disgusted by him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one, right? They ridiculed him. Not only did the rulers do this, but the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They made fun of him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself, right? 
goes on to say, there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us, right? So in the midst of being beaten, in the midst of being falsely accused, in the midst of being jeered at and sneered at, in the midst of suffering this injustice, in the midst of all of these things, Jesus could have said, I'm out, done, I've had enough. He could have exerted his power to wrench himself down off of that cross. With a snap of his fingers, he could have struck everyone dead, and yet what did Jesus do? He used his power not to escape, not to justify himself, but he used his power to stay on that cross and to die for you and for me and for all of those people that were jeering at him and making fun of him, all of those people that were treating him unjustly and unfairly. He was very patient all the way to the last for you and for me. Again, the question is, would your coworkers, would your husband, would your wife, would your kids describe you as someone with a long fuse? Would they describe you as someone with whom uh, wrath and indignation is far far away when they deal with you? Is that how they would describe you? Let me just go ahead and answer the question for each of you today and say, probably not, at least not all the time. I know my kids wouldn't say that about me, nor would they say that I'm completely humble, nor would they say that I'm completely gentle, right? They just wouldn't, right? None of us is, right? All of us have fallen far, far short of this calling to walk worthy of what we've received. We just have over and over and over again. And it's in some respects why that illustration of Johnny Manziel is so meaningful, because in the same way that we're indignant with him because he hasn't walked worthy, we haven't been walked worthy, and yet we haven't walked worthy, and yet we've been called to so much more. But you know what the good news is? Because that's really what this is always about. The good news is that Jesus was. He was perfectly humble. He was a servant. He made himself low in order to wash our feet, in order to wash us from our sins completely. He was gentle. He had the right and he had the power to be harsh and to enact judgment, and yet he offers forgiveness. He was patient. His wrath, his indignation was far, far, far away, so far away that it's as far as the east is from the west for those of us who trust in him, right? And that's the good news. That's the gospel that You haven't lived a life worthy of this calling. You won't live a life worthy of this calling. You can only do your best, and it's not enough. But the good news is, is that Jesus' perfect life was enough. As you look around the room this morning, you'll see tables with bread and wine on my right and bread and grape juice on my left. And this is a meal that we call the Lord's Supper. Some people call it communion. Uh, There are different names for it. But ultimately, what this meal of bread and wine symbolizes is all of this. And maybe actually in its most strict sense, what this meal represents is the Passover in the Old Testament, where essentially we see the angel of death passing over the homes of the Israelites uh, where they had killed this innocent lamb and put the blood of this lamb on the doorpost of their homes. So the angel of death looked and saw the blood on their doorposts. The angel of death passed over, and those people were saved. There's a very real sense in which, in fact, not a real sense in which, but exactly Jesus is the fulfillment of that Passover. He's the eternal Passover lamb. He was slain, 
and his blood is over you so that when God looks at you, there's no more wrath, right? There's no more, there's no more judgment. There's no indignation. There's just a declaration of, I poured out all my wrath on my son. There's nothing left for you. So when God looks at you, he sees you as holy and blameless, not just today, but always, because the blood of Christ, the eternal Passover lamb, is more than enough to cover over all of your sins, all of your brokenness, all of your rebellion for your whole life. And it's not just enough to cover over yours, but it's enough to cover over everyone who trusts in Christ alone for their salvation. And so this morning, I want to invite you um, to prepare to receive this Lord's Supper, Um, but I want to qualify a couple things. I want to say, first of all, that this meal today is only for those people who trust in Christ alone for their salvation. It's not for everybody. It's a family meal, and so it's only for those people who are in the family. So if you don't trust in Christ alone for your salvation, I would just invite you to sit back and watch and to maybe think about what this meal even symbolizes and what it means. The other thing I want to, to pause and invite you to do today is for those of you in this room who are believers, who trust in Christ alone for your salvation, and yet you struggle to believe that God loves you, or you struggle to believe that he sees you as holy and blameless, or you struggle to believe that he's not really angry at you, what I would invite you to do is I would invite you to think about this bread and wine, to think about Jesus as the eternal Passover lamb, to think about those first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, to realize that your salvation isn't about your goodness or absence of badness, but your salvation is holy and completely in Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. If his blood is over you, that's all that matters, and that's all that this meal represents. You are declared not guilty, right? You are set free. God sees you as perfectly righteous. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, I thank you, um, as always, for the good news um, of who you are as our good Father, who your Son is as our perfect Savior. Father, I pray that, um, first and foremost, that we would look deeply into the complexity and the truth of the gospel, that, um, frankly, we are we're worse than we realize. And at the same time, Father, we're more loved than we could possibly ever imagine. And so, Father, I pray that we would look deeply into the gospel. And I pray, Father, that the goodness that flows out of us, gentleness and humility and patience, that all of that that flows out of us would flow out of us, not because we're simply trying harder, but it would flow out of us naturally as we look and we see the grace and the mercy that you have offered to us as you've called us to be your daughters and your sons. And so, Father, we pray these things today in your son Jesus' name. Amen.